Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hi, everybody. Welcome to We Gotta Talk, where it's all about real talk on big topics. We are getting serious today and helping you work through trauma. We love a good self-improvement moment, right? Today's guest is Cody Isabel. He is the a coach, the co-founder and CEO of Rewrite and Rise, which is a program helping people work through trauma and stress to show up as a healthy person. Rewrite and Rise uses neuroscience, AI, and neurotechnology to objectively measure and improve mental and emotional well-being. Cody, welcome to the show and thank you for being on here after I found you on Instagram and tracked you down. Heck yeah, I appreciate you having me on. I'm pumped up. (laughs) I'm sure that's how most people find you because your work is, it's impactful. I would say in like the four seconds it took me to scroll through my feed, your content really caught my eye. So good stuff. Heck yeah. Yeah, it's funny. The amount of people are like, oh my gosh, are you from TikTok or LinkedIn? It's, It's kind of funny. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, I know there are a lot of people in your space who are in the mental and emotional well-being space, whether it be coaches, motivational speakers, people who are in natural uh, medicine or, you know, regular medicine. What makes Rewrite and Rise so special? Because there is something that's resonating through your social media presence and through your programs that's obviously really working. Yeah, I would say one of the biggest things is um, our controversial perspective is that not everybody needs like therapy, like hardcore therapy, um, understanding and learning about like my background is neuroscience. I'm a neuroscientist. I'm a kind of behavioral. I love it. Like how your mind affects your behavior. Um, and so really helping people understand their mind, brain and body and how those three things work together um, and then putting data to those things, um, I think is really one of the biggest differentiators. Um, so it's much more empowering. It's less, oh, I have to go get help from somebody. The problem and solution are inside of you. So, Oh, that's so interesting. I want to know more about your background in neuroscience. There's so much that's coming out and available to the public now that we do have social media. I'm thinking of Huberman Lab right off the top of my head. It's like a, you know, it, obviously yeah. like an MVP in the space. Um, for some reason, Cody, when I hear people tell me that my brain is working just how it's supposed to be working, even though it feels like it's malfunctioning. It is a source of great relief. It's such a complex mechanism that it obviously literally runs our lives. Tell us like the most surprising thing you've learned in all of your years studying neuroscience. Hmm. That's a good question. One of the most surprising things I would say, some of the most surprising things is uh, in relation to like perception, which is a lot of what I deal with, um, especially around anxiety, depression, stress, um, the amount of information your brain is taking in every second is crazy, like 6 trillion bits of information every second you're taking in, but you can only consciously be aware of about 126 of those bits. Um, and so it's, it's, that's one of the craziest things that I've ever understood, like how much information we're sifting through. And then, along that same line, how much of that information is coming bottom up from our body to our brain, which is about 80% of the information that we process is coming from our body to our brain, not top down. And that's a lot of what traditional therapy, I feel like gets somewhat confused. People come to us. Yes, I love that. No, no, you're right. When therapy, we're working from the brain down. We're verbalizing our concerns or issues, and we're hoping that it has an impact on our depression or anxiety or stress. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by a bottom up approach? So your bottom up is going from your body to your brain, to your mind. 
So if you think of your mind, it's just like a messaging center, a notification center, just like, it's just like your phone. It's a notification center um, for what's going on in your body. And so when you're going bottom up, you're going from your body. So whether it's feeling your butt on the chair or your shirt on, right, that's your body. Then it sends a signal through your nerves to your brain. And then your brain is like, mind, this is what's going on. Your mind is like, ah, this is awesome. You touch a hot stove, right? It goes from your finger through your nerves through to your brain into your mind. And you're like, ow, that hurt. Um, and so that's going bottom up as opposed to top down. Um, and that's 80% of what you're doing daily. Is bottom so up. how can we begin to work in that direction then? I mean, you, you gave a good example. We don't want to be running around touching hot stoves to learn lessons, but I, I would imagine this is where things like meditation or, you know, physically calming exercises would come into play. Like, but I, I'm interested in knowing how we work from the body first to calm the mind. Awareness is a big piece, like a huge piece first. Um, a lot of, especially uh, a really good example is anxiety because uh, it's very mm. much a bodily thing. And it's, I, I work with anxiety, especially trauma. Trauma replicates or seems, appears or can come on like anxiety. But um, so awareness that these things are generated, stored and felt in your body is like the number one thing. And then being able to start to call them out and name them is something that's really, really easy. It's not too kumbaya. Um, and it's really like an easy thing that you can start to do. So naming, naming the things that are going on and the emotions, happy to dive deeper if you'd like. Yeah, let's start there. And you talked about anxiety, which I feel like is something that a lot of us deal with at one point in our lives or another. So when I feel anxious and my chest might tighten or might mm. start to breathe really shallow, or some people might go into a full-blown panic attack. Um, yep. When we're sort of doing this reverse approach and we're like working from the body up through the brain to the mind, what are some immediately grounding things we can begin to do to sort of take our body out of that experience yeah so anxiety is a hyper body thing like so the feeling of anxiety makes you think um i'm gonna die well anxiety really is the fear of fear the fear of fear it's kind of a meta thing um because the feeling of people are so not in their body they're so processing in their head they're so not in their body that when their heart goes up their palms get sweaty their breathing changes it freaks them out like oh, i'm gonna die <laughs> that's it Peace right. out, Cody, like it's over, but uh, that's not necessarily the case. It's just a fear of fear. And so um, the first thing I suggest to people, especially for anxiety, is to name it. Um, so like, for example, here in Kansas City, there's a uh, roller coaster that's called the Mamba. Um, and so I've named my anxiety the Mamba. Um, and so whenever it gets here, um, anxiety is something I struggle with a little bit. And something that I've named mine is the Mamba. And so Whenever I get freaked out, I welcome it. I'm like, oh, what is up, Mamba? How are you doing? Like, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. I know you're here to protect me because something that people forget is that, that that's a part of you. Anxiety is a part of you, whether you like it or not. Um, it's a part of you that's there to protect the whole, right? So that part of you is trying to protect all of you in some way. And whatever it's doing, it's trying to protect you. And so what a lot of people do is they shove down anxiety and they're like, go away, go away, go away, go away. Like I've had, I've worked with somebody uh, I don't know if I could cut on this podcast, but they named their yes. anxiety oh, beautiful. They named their anxiety that bitch. And I was like, <laughs> what? Um, and that's a part of, that was a part of her that she was calling and being that rude to. If you walk out in the public and you call someone that bitch, are they going to like go away, ignore you? Or are they going to get louder and be like, what the hell did you just say to me? And they start yelling it, right? Same thing with your anxiety, same thing with that part of you. And so people try to push it away, push it away, push it away. Um, and that makes it worse. It's like pushing a beach ball underwater. <laughs> Eventually it's gonna rub back up and explode. And so 
by naming it uh, like Mamba, you can start to uh, welcome it and say, what is up? Thank you so much for showing up here. And the moment that you name something neurologically, you're shifting your brain's ability to um, freak out less because the Mm -hmm. moment that you name it and you're welcoming it, now your brain is like, oh my gosh, like Cody's not freaking out right now. He's not scared of what's happening to him. I don't have to label this as anxiety. I can ramp down my autonomic nervous system, my fight or flight response, which is causing you to feel the anxiety. And the second you name it and call it out and welcome it, you can start to release its grip on you. Okay. So let's walk through that. You know what? I'm going to get back into your history and your background too. So don't let me forget that, but let's walk through that as an exercise. Cause when I introduce something, I really want to make sure that we got some good takeaways. So I'm experiencing an anxious episode. Say I'm walking into a place where I know that, I don't know, someone that I've had a conflict with in the past is going to be, and I'm noticing the same things I mentioned. My stomach is kind of clenching. My chest is kind of clenching. I'm not breathing right. I name the anxiety. I say, okay, you know, thank you anxiety for showing up. I know you're doing your best to try to protect me from something that I perceive to be a threat. And then what do I do? Yeah, that's perfect. So uh, I guess two steps back, if we want a full blown process, it's something I call MUSE, M-E-W-S. So the first thing is movement um, in the M, is the M. Um, E is externalized. So movement is moving your body around. Um, Movement starts to break up the chemicals that create uh, anxiety in your body. So they start to uh, eat away the cortisol and the epinephrine and that stuff. So being able to move and whether that's tapping your arms, like you could be tapping your arms, you could go like this, you could shake your hands. If you shake your hands enough, your hands will start to feel tingly. That's yeah. the blood coming back in. So that's movement. Externalize is getting, focusing on a point, like just put a point in the wall or a marker or something right on the wall. Um, if you're in a, like a coffee shop, like you explained, find some point in the wall that you can focus on then welcome the anxiety. So whatever you've named your anxiety, I've heard all sorts of things. Um, Welcome it. Hey, what's up? Thanks so much for being here. And then do, um, you talked about Dr. Huberman. He has um, his side breathing method. So two in your nose, one out your mouth, like, and really focus on breathing out. Um, That shortens the space your heart has in your diaphragm to uh, pump. So it slows your heart rate down. Um, When your heart rate slows down, pretty much the rest of your body follows. Um, So you'll calm down a little bit. Um, Or box breathing is another really easy one that people, I'm sure you've heard of that, but it's just breathe in for four, hold for four, breathe out for four, hold for four. And then you do that in and just do that for 90 seconds, 30 seconds, 90 seconds. um, And that emotion will pass um, and, and you will be more okay. And then act in that moment when you're feeling the calm is action. That's one of the biggest things um, that I am huge on is behavioral activation. Like your behaviors change your response to anxiety more than anything. So go do the thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. I love that. Hey, what is your background? I meant to ask you this early on, but we got so into it right away. You said you studied neuroscience and I know you work with a co-founder as well at, at your company. So you guys sort of bring your distinct skills to the table and the ways that you work with your clients, but tell us what you studied and how you even came to find this as, you know, your life calling essentially. Yeah, so my background is cognitive behavioral neuroscience, neuroscience, and so what that simply means is like the way that you think, how how the way that you think, sorry, and what's happening in your physical brain, like physiologically, how that affects your behavior. Um, and so I really, really love uh, researching and learning about that kind of stuff. Um, I started, um, I kind of got into this during the pandemic, actually, during COVID. Um, I started working with young people, especially like 20-somethings. Um, as just really at first it just started as kind of going back and forth like um they're scared to touch doorknobs like how do i deal with anxiety Mm -hmm. stress depression or behavioral change that's a huge part of 
uh, brain side, like what habits, patterns, routines, things that you do. Um, and so I, it kind of started there. Um, and then my co-founder, Gwen, she's, she's an awesome, she's a badass. Um, <laughs> you guys should interview her next. She's awesome. She, uh, uh, her and I kind of came together and she has this background in engineering, bioengineering, bioinformatics. Um, and so understanding the information the body is giving off and how to use that, um, and AI and machine learning, those types of technologies. And we kind of came together, um, and put my, what I knew about the brain and science and people and what she knew about engineering, uh, algorithms, those types of things together. Um, and created rewrite and rise which is kind of where we're at today um it's been really really fun um so we have machine learning algorithms that are very similar to the brain um i won't get too super technical but they analyze data the same way your brain analyzes data um and so we use um we started using things like whoop or like apple watch i've got sensors all over me but uh <laughs> data um, to start to help people uh, predict their mental and emotional health and start to be able to help them understand what's happening, um, their believability scores, like what is anxiety, when do I feel anxious, like those types of things. And so making the data of their body actionable to them, as opposed to um, your six, six, okay, that doesn't help me really mm -hmm. it just i'm just my height um but in when you go to family gatherings and you're around this person your heart rate is here and when you're around this person your heart rate is here here's what that could mean different things like that where we can start to um, analyze their data and start to help them with um, our brain programs. So it's those two halves that kind of got Gwen and I into what we're doing now. I love it. You know, I have to be candid with you. I hear AI and I immediately recoil. I think of the robots taking over the world. I think, I think of an unholy union between big tech and our precious, precious personal information. But oh, yes. hearing you, you know, which I feel like is a separate conversation. But in this way, it seems like you're taking biofeedback essentially and using it to predict behavioral patterns and sort of therefore help us improve things. So it's, it sounds a little uh, less intense, but t tell us about how you marry AI with that um, men mental health sort of coaching, because um, like we mentioned before, we do have specific things that happen in our bodies when we're anxious mm -hmm. or not feeling great. So how does your program, what are we measuring with your program that is giving you that information that in turn helps you improve that patient's health? So there's a bunch of things we measure. Biometrics is probably the most objective and easy to understand. So it's like heart rate variability, like heart rate, respiration rate, uh, blood ox, things, or like blood oxygen, percent of oxygen mm -hmm. in your blood, things like that. And so um, that's some of the data we're collecting biometrically. And then the other data is through the coaching and stuff that we do, the programs that we do with people. So psychographic information, like, um, like Myers-Briggs is a really basic example, DISC, like Enneagram, there's so many of the things that people uh, kind of take personality wise, psychographic information wise, um, and then what people subjectively report um, to us um, in session, and then objective measurements. And so one of the easiest ways, or easy example of one of the things we can do is believability scores, um, mm -hmm. because we work a lot on beliefs um, that people have. And so for example, um, somebody might believe not believe that they have a meditative practice um but their biometrics and their objective report says that they they do have a a, a meditation meditation practice and the problem if you don't believe that you have a meditation practice um you don't get the benefits of that medita meditation practice and so like 
there's a really awesome study out of Stanford, um, a colleague of Dr. Huberman's actually that did this with um, housemaids or not housemaids, but uh, at hotels, like they come and clean the rooms and stuff. And what they did is they had um, none of these um, uh, maids at first knew that the stuff that they're doing um, was like, like pulling the bed, cleaning the sheets, clean all the stuff was exercise. They didn't believe it was exercise. And so what they did is they took, they split the group in half and one group, they started posting little post-it notes all over the rooms they were working in um, and telling them like, this burns this many calories. The surgeon general considers this, this amount of exercise and, and helping them start to understand the activities they were doing, the amount of stairs and steps and all the stuff is exercise. Um, and so that's what they did for one group. The other group they left completely alone, the control group. After the study, what they found is that the group that they shift the belief in that it is exercise, their body weight went down, their body fat went down, their HRV went down, like every, almost every measurement of health improved in the group that believed they were exercising. And so that's a huge problem um, that people run into when we're working with them, that data can help them create that belief, just like mm. the nun, or uh, the maids got. Um, that's the same thing that we can do with our clients, um, because a lot of times they're doing exercise, they just don't realize it. Why is it so hard for us to switch that though? Because that mindset, that strength of mindset is something that keeps coming up on this podcast. We've interviewed experts in manifestation or coaching, and there seems to be this unifying theme that if you believe it, it will be true or can be true. But so many of us refuse to lean in still because it sounds too good to be true. So what I guess that's proof of mental blocks that we need to get through. But tell me more about the power of the mind and the power of a good mind shift. Yeah, I, I love, <laughs> I work a lot with like Reiki instructors, manifest, all the quantum, all the stuff, right? Because they want me to come in and be like, can you explain neuroscience behind this? Like, and absolutely, yes, I can. <laughs> um, and that's why I love, because I work with a lot of guys too that don't want the kumbaya, they just want the rational stuff. And so um, beliefs are protective in some way, almost always. Um, and so I use something called the belief wheel to help people understand this. Um, and it's, it's really, 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 it's really simple. There's four pieces of the belief wheel. Um, at the very top, imagine the belief wheel like a circle of arrows. Mm -hmm. Okay. At the very top are beliefs. So uh, like, a, what's a good one? Um, like, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy could be a belief, right? Um, and what that makes them feel then, so the next arrow down is feelings and thoughts. So that belief makes you feel guilty, shameful, nervous, worried, anxious, scared, whatever, um, in relation to what's a really common one, uh, submitting a work assignment or something like that, um, or getting something in on time. Uh, but you feel like you're not good enough, not worthy, not smart enough. That's your belief, which makes you feel in relation to that work task, nervous, worried, anxious, scared, guilty, shameful, which makes you then think, I'm not smart enough. I can't do this. They don't like me. I'm going to get fired. They what all of those ants, those automatic negative thoughts start to come in. Hmm. And so the feelings make the thoughts worse. The thoughts makes the feelings worse. And then what happens is to get away from those feelings, which is this is the third step of the belief wheel at the very bottom is action or inaction. Um, and so what happens is those feelings and thoughts suck. Um, and so you want to cope. So what do you do? You procrastinate, right? Hmm. And so the perfectionist or the person doesn't feel good enough, they procrastinate to cope or they drink or they smoke or they, whatever it is. Um, and that's the actions that they're taking. And so then what does that do? <laughs> the s assignment that they need to put in or that they need to submit, they wait till the last minute to do it. 
Uh, and so then the result is something that's actually not good enough. And the, the kicker of all of this um, is because of the action or the choice that they made to procrastinate, they got a crap, a shitty result. And so that reinforces the belief that I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. And then you go back around the cycle. And so it's a self-fulfilling self. It, it reinforces itself over and over and over again until you can shift that belief um, through. There's two ways you can shift it through action, which is behavioral activation. We could talk about that um, mm -hmm. and belief, like a real belief shift, just like the nuns. Like it's not always that hard to shift a belief. Almost everybody has had a moment in their life where they believe one thing and then literally seconds later, they believe something different. Um, just like the nun, or not the nun, sorry, the maids. I don't know. I keep saying nuns. The maids. <laughs> uh, they, the second they started seeing those post-it notes, their belief shifted, right? And so they started reinforcing something new. Now that they believed it was exercise, their feelings and thoughts shifted to, holy crap, I'm getting exercise. This is awesome. This is exciting. Their thoughts were, I'm doing a workout right now. I'm exercising right now. And so then the actions they're taking are maybe they're working a little bit harder. Maybe they're doing some different things, right? So they're taking different actions, which then gets them the result of the exercise, which reinforces the belief that this is exercise. And that's how it re that's your subconscious working towards you and for you, putting that same belief wheel on your team as opposed to against you. Does that make sense? It, yeah, it makes total sense. It reminds me a lot of the work I did with my medical anxiety, which I've talked about in jest and in seriousness on this podcast before, where it, you know they gave you that wheel, they gave an imagery in, in the classwork that we were given of exactly what you said, um, thought, action, and sort of consequence. And what I try to visualize as I work through that particular issue of mine is like breaking in on the wheel and saying, okay, just because I have this thought or anxiety, doesn't necessarily mean that this is true or that this is going to happen. But I have trouble, Cody, breaking in on that part of the wheel. To me, it sounds like I'm trying to break in on the belief part of it. But for some reason, because maybe that's a very well-worn path in my brain, and this is just one example, but it is really hard to break into that cycle and sort of cut that in half. What do you advice do you have for people who are aware of the circle and cycle that they're in, but need to break through on that belief part? Right. So I, I pretend is, is I'm a, adults, just kids wearing a costume. Um, and so the, um, the something I really help people a lot with is creating a hero um, who has different beliefs than you. And so, for example, when I am when I am uh, public speaking, or even right now, for example, I am pretending to be Tony Robbins. He's a freaking hero of mine. I love him. I met him in high school or I didn't meet him in high school. Sorry, I, I found his work in high school. Um, and so what I start to do is, because your brain is all, what would Sony do? What would Sony do? What would Sony do? What would Cody do? What would Cody do? All the time, trying to predict your behavior. And so right now, what my brain is doing, instead of saying Cody, it's saying Tony. What would Tony do? How would Tony answer that? What would Cody, like, how, what, how would he show up on this podcast? Would he let some computer malfunction mess him up? No, he'd get his iPad and figure it out, right? And so that's Tony. And I'm acting and believing differently because I'm pretending to be my hero, which is uh, Tony Robbins. Um, and so I help people create heroes so they can take different actions and those heroes have different beliefs. And the beautiful thing is when they have different beliefs, I'm doing it right now. I'm acting through it. It's just like a really simple, ridiculous example of skydiving, right? <laughs> Most people would have a hard time cracking through the belief that I shouldn't jump out of planes. It's a pretty, <laughs> pretty good belief to not jump out of airplanes that are flying 20,000 feet in the air. However, when you start to skydive, what happens? When you go for the first time, your feelings and thoughts are like, I am freaking terrified. You have the belief I shouldn't jump out of planes. But then after you take the action of jumping out of the plane, like Will Smith talks about this a lot, like so that like uh, as far as taking that jump, um, once you take that jump and you land on the ground and you survive, that's a new result. And so then the belief now becomes, oh, maybe 
maybe I can jump out of planes with a parachute, with a with an instructor when I'm skydiving. And then the next time the feelings and thoughts are not as bad. And then you take the action again, you get the same result and you're safe again. And it starts to shift that belief. And so um, by creating a hero to help you take action um, and have different beliefs, you start to be, at the end of the day, you're just, it's a costume you're wearing. I'm, I'm wearing Tony, but Cody is acting. And so I am reshifting and changing the beliefs in my head through that action with my hero. Does that make sense? I love, that's it, at total sense. It's the Sasha Fierce theory with Beyonce. She says, when I get on stage, I'm not Beyonce, I'm Sasha Fierce. And exactly. embodying that version of herself obviously helped her achieve great success. It's 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 so interesting to me. I, I feel like this is something I need to practice um, because you're right. It's so easy for us to believe that other people are capable of that great action or other people are capable of making this change, but not little old me. But when you start to think of it outside of yourself, it's such a valuable tool. 100% agree. Yeah, it's, I, it's crazy. I got a quick question um, that we have live here. I'm just going to throw this in before we move on. Fiona is asking, is overthinking a cause or effect of anxiety? Is overthinking a cause or effect? Overthinking would be in the, I guess it would be what are you specifically overthinking? But if you're thinking of, it's a feedback loop. <laughs> so when you overthink, you're, you, it makes you feel a certain way, which makes you think more, which makes you feel more, think more, th and you go back and forth in that hyperloop of feelings and thoughts. And so that's a lot of the time um, what overthinking becomes, I would say. Um, and so it, it's kind of both <laughs> because in anxiety specifically, like I said, is the fear of fear. And so the hyper thinking about the fear and oh, heart tight chest means heart attack. Um, you start to overthink all and catastrophize that creates more fear. Um, and so I wouldn't, I would say it is part of anxiety. It's hard to say if it's a cause or effect because it's kind of both, which is a bad answer. I feel like a lawyer. No, 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 not at all. Listen, I no, I think these are really complicated subjects. Let me rephrase it and ask you this way. If we're experiencing overthinking and it's associated with some anxiety for us, what are some ways to break through? Yeah, that's okay. That's, that's a good, uh, very good question. So overthinking, um, I would suggest, um, depending on what you're overthinking, like if it's a health thing, if it's like a decision, um, that that's a huge one. Action is still what I would suggest. Um, the hardest part that people, they worry that taking an action or making a decision, it, it's the end, it's the end game, <laughs> but it's not right. And so, um, shifting, what I suggest for people in that situation is to shift action in their mind from one single thing to a circle of things. So action, you go from acting to assessing the action, to adjusting, to acting again, act, assess, adjust, act, assess, adjust. So it's always a learning process. So no matter what decision you make, no matter what you do, you are always getting back to, oh, I can make a new decision. I can make a new action. And so I would suggest shifting from action by itself to the triad of act, assess, adjust. Love that. Let's move on to the concept of trauma. We so far have focused on things that we might have relative control over in addressing our anxieties, our worries, but trauma is something that impacts us all. And I love this um, explanation that I got from a rapid transformational therapy um, expert that I worked with. And she, like many people, calls them big T traumas and little T traumas. And what was interesting yeah. to me as she explained that, yeah, is that we all have some form of trauma in our lives. And whether we're dealing with it or not, it seems to be a cause of a lot of people's depression, anxiety, or worries. And in some cases, it gets us into even bad behavioral patterns. So what do we do about those problems, Cody, that happen to us? Things that we aren't in control over. And this could be how we were raised, abuse we've dealt with, 
bad relationships we've endured. Um, what's the starting point for that stuff that's beyond our control? Yeah, the place that I like to start a lot is kind of mapping out the three E's of trauma, event, experience, and effect. Um, it's a lot of, like, I like to explain trauma that way. Um, I mean, we can dive into that too, but um, I like to map those things out um, because trauma, big T or little t, um, is different for everybody. <laughs> um, and so the example I like to give is uh, like a house fire. <laughs> if your house is on fire, that is the event. The experience of it's your house is I got to get my kids, I got to get my dog. It's traumatic. Um, and then the effect could be PTSD, could be uh, anxiety in the future, right? Um, you're terrified. But what if you're the firefighter? <laughs> same house fire, same event, but the experience builds resilience because it's another fire they're going into and they've done it a thousand times. And then the effect, or sorry, they their experience of it is they're excited to get to solve this problem. It's a puzzle, not a problem to the firefighter. And then the um, effect is that they are, um, it builds resilience. It's another fire. It's a learning experience. And so same event, two different people, completely different effects. And so mapping that out is one of the first things that I um, like to talk about. Um, and that's where like traditional, like, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, cause we use all sorts of different techniques, but CBT, DBT, like dialogue behavioral therapy, like all sorts of different types of psychotherapy, um, is really, really good to kind of have a conversation about like what's going on, um, and figuring out, What's your objective? What's the result? Like, what is this holding you back from? Um, and uh, then being able to create a goal um, to get to. Um, so if, if, if there's a past relationship that you had, like you've been in, because we like overwhelmingly, <laughs> the people we work a lot with are people after the breakups or after divorce, mm -hmm. specifically after narcissistic abuse, emotional abuse, domestic violence, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And so those things would be considered trauma. So um, the first step that I would take with those people is like, okay, what is, what is, what is that breaking a trauma bond is number one for them. But after that, it's like, who am I? What are my boundaries? What do I like? What do I want to be? Right. And those are things that they don't have access to, or they, they lost access to. Um, they're still in there, mm -hmm. <laughs> but they lost access to those things and they're missing out on those pieces and parts of their life. And so mapping out really specifically, um, what's going on? What's the problem? Like general problems have general solutions, specific problems have specific solutions. Um, and so that's like the number one thing that I do is really sift through all of the stuff um, and figure out, okay, what is the problem that you're truly having? What is it holding you back from? And then how do we solve for that? And what does that usually look like? Say you're working with someone who, in the example you just gave, is coming out of a negative relationship, whether they experienced abuse of some sort, or maybe it just wasn't a quote unquote successful relationship in their minds. What are some ways to start moving beyond that trauma? Right. So one of the biggest things, an easy example is a trauma bond. Um, the trauma bond is created from like an abuse love cycle. Um, in your brain. And so it's essentially a fight or flight cortisol type response. And then it is dampened down with oxytocin and love and all that kind of stuff, whether it's um, uh, in that back up and forth creates an addiction pattern. Um, mm. And so strangely enough, um, after narcissistic abuse or ab emotional abuse, um, it's almost like um, you're addicted to that person, literally, um, or to that cycle. And so you go through withdrawal, which is anxiety, which is feels like stress. Um, and so that's an example of one of the first places that I'll go through is like, okay, how can we start to dissect, uh, first of all, help you understand what a trauma bond is neurologically, and mm -hmm. then start to understand where do you feel it in your body? Um, specifically, um, trauma stored in the body most often, um, people 
think that a lot of it's stored in your in your in your brain, but only one type of memory is in your brain. Four types of memory are in your body, and so really starting to understand where they feel that trauma bond, where they're feeling the anxiety, the stress, the w w whatever it is that they're the fear, um, terror, um, where are they feeling it for themselves, and then zoning in on the body part or area um, and helping them, like we just talked about, name entertainment. So name mm. their, name that anxiety, name that beast, that enemy, um, and then create a hero to help them. Who do you want to become like? Who is someone that sets awesome boundaries? Who, like uh, one one of the ladies I work with, uh, uh, two there's two badasses that she, that she uses. Michelle Obama is one uh, to protect her peace, like get out of here. And then um, Oprah um, is another one uh, that people have become. And so it's name entertainment, um, and then creating a hero so that they can become something and start to act in a different way. Um, those would be some of the first steps that I would suggest um, when I'm working with someone. What about relationships with narcissists? This is a topic in and of itself, I'm certain, but it's a topic that's really popular lately. People are always wondering with the sort of awareness around this condition now, are the people that I'm interacting with falling under this category? How do we, if at all, recover from narcissistic one-sided relationships. And the additional question I have for you is, is that person who's the narcissist ever curable? Yeah, that, so that is one of the most interesting debates in like all of psychotherapy and psychology. So that's, that's cool. But we can talk about that as far as are they curable? The, um, as far as if are you with a narcissist or different things like that, I sometimes have a hard time because I feel like the word gets used a lot um, yeah. when in reality it is statistically one two-ish percent. Um, and so, <laughs> because people who have narcissistic tendencies, um, is that's not the same as being a true narcissist. <laughs> and so I have people that reach out to me like, am I a narcissist? Like, and it's like, narcissists don't generally think or worry about being a narcissist. So you're probably not a narcissist. And so, um, and there's, there's just a lot of people that take individual one or two tendencies um, and create a complete narcissist out of that person. And so that'd be the first thing that I really, really like <laughs> hit, the, hit the break pedal a little bit. Not everybody is a narcissist. Um, people have narcissistic tendencies, absolutely. Um, and I, I work with people who have been with true narcissists and I see the effect that a real narcissist has on someone um, outside of even being a narcissist, emotional abuse by itself. You don't have to be a narcissist to be emotionally abusive to someone. Um, that, so that's I, like, separating those things is so freaking important because like it, 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 it's not mutually exclusive and that's right. frustrating to me sometimes. Let's hop in though and tell me what are some true uh, characteristics of a true narcissist so we can identify this in our life. Yeah, so a true narcissist, uh, the biggest one that I would, um, is, is lack of empathy. Um, especially with, uh, it's easy with kids, it's easy, or, or a, a way to sneak into it is like you're watching a movie with somebody, you pause the movie and you ask, how do you think that character's feeling? And if they're like, I don't care, I don't know, like, why are you asking, leave me alone? Like, they have a hard time empathizing um, and, and trying to guess or imagine what that other person could feel like. Um, and so, um, if they're oh my god they they just uh let's pretend they just lost a family oh my god i feel terrible i can't believe like if i lost my parent i feel so bad like and they can start to understand so lack of empathy is a big one i mean some of the other ones like uh like a grandiose narcissist is very self-centered they're very much about themselves um the um, and they have just a lack of general um care for um for other people um that's a huge one um and they want um, a lot of attention. That's a big thing. Like it's all about me. Um, uh, they they want to be more interesting than interested. So they're not asking you a lot of questions. Um, over time, up front, they will. 
um, which can be kind of scary if someone's asking you a shit ton of questions, like on the first date, like um, they're trying to get pieces of information they can use to manipulate you, some, manipulate you and love bomb you more effectively. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's actually, now that I'm saying out loud, kind of a, a twofer, because up front, they'll ask you lots of questions and then they'll disappear. Or not disappear, but they'll stop asking questions, stop caring as much, and they'll start using the things you gave them against you. Um, so those would be some some big picture ones I would suggest to kind of watch out for. I'd have to look at the DSM like right. like like uh for each individual because there's like ten characteristics that specifically create a narcissist. So I have to look at that because I don't know the top of my head. Those are no, those are three really good identifying factors. And can we recover from relationships with true narcissists? Yo, one hundred percent, yes, thousand percent. Humans are so people in general are so much more resilient than I feel like most people give themselves credit for um, themselves or other people. Like we are badasses. We have survived a long time. Like you can survive anything. Like it gets better. I promise. Like your brain is plastic your entire life. Um, yes, you can. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of the um, crazy stories of mental and physical recovery from Holocaust survivors. You know, right. one of literally probably one of the most, if not the most, um, you know, devastating events in recent history that really caused people to dig down to the bottom, bottom, bottom of the barrel for courage and survival. And um, I just continue to be inspired. I'm like, read a lot of, you know, history and wow, it's really remarkable what people can recover from. I did want to ask this because we touched on it and I don't want to forget we talked about narcissists ever recovering themselves. You said there was some mm. debate, but just so that we can put a bow on this before we move on. Oh, for sure. So yeah, there is a lot of debate um, on whether or not a narcissist can actually get better or not. A, a lot of what people think is that they cannot. <laughs> there is no recovering and no getting better. Um, so that's a lot of what the research says. There is newer research though, if there's a willingness. Um, with all of this out there, and even we, like even us, we get people that reach out to us that say, I, I am a narcissist and I want to get better. And if they have mm-hmm. a consistent willingness and want and desire to get better, my personal belief is that they can recover and start to get better. Um, and in some of, the, I, some of the work that I have done, I've seen some of those things. There will be a default to the mean, so like a default back to those tendencies. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they are willing to do the work and really, really focus on building EQ, like emotional intelligence, especially like that helps everything else. If they're willing to focus and learn those skills, um, I think they can recover. And I've seen narcissists hmm. make gigantic um, recoveries um, that I've worked with personally. Um, so there's there's a bunch of debate. It's open research, I would say. Awesome. Well, that's a positive way to look at it. I'm all for mm-hmm. the glass half full approach. I want to move on. To, I want to move on to the topic of brain inflammation, and I know that this is a big part of how you sort of intake some of your clients. Um, we run through a quick survey, and you see what type of brain inflammation you might be dealing with. What I didn't know before I was started clicking through your site and your course was that trauma or depression or anxiety can create that physical impact of inflammation in the brain. I didn't really associate the two, but does everybody have inflammation in some way in their brains? Uh, Yeah, almost. Yes. (laughs) Just to be blunt. And and that's not bad. (laughs) Uh, There's inflammation that builds up in your brain um, throughout the day, general stress, normal stress that sleep takes care of. Um, And so inflammation Hmm. overall gets demonized a lot, but it's not it's it's not as bad as it seems. It's really, really good um, for helping you heal. 
<laughs> in certain situations when it's not chronic. The problem becomes when it's chronic and doesn't go away mm. um, and becomes to where it's so much that your brain and body can't clear it out um, effectively. That's when it gets really, really bad. And so the way that I like to think about it is like your body is the soil for your brain and your brain is the soil for your mind. And so if your body is a toxic wasteland, your brain is sitting in a toxic wasteland. <laughs> and that is what's creating that inflammation, if you will. Um, so if you're not exercising, you're not eating right, you're not socially connecting, you're not having time where you play and have Sony time or Cody time, um, you're not uh, doing something for your mind, those types of things, your body starts to become a, mm. like toxic soil. That's bottom up. That's the first six areas that I focus on when I work with somebody. Um, and so that creates a crappy environment for uh, your brain. And then your mind can also create this environment, those ants, autom automatic negative thoughts um, that continue to ruminate and run in your mind constantly, like always thinking about that past thing. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I can't do this. Um, people hate me. I know I'm not lovable. Um, creates an environment in your brain that creates a um, uh, uh, toxic, uh, uh, inflamed state in your brain as well, uh, because it puts your body or your brain into kind of that fight or flight uh, that fight or flight mode. And so something called your HPA axis, um, it turns on and is hyper upregulated, uh, when your thoughts are that negative. Um, and so that turns on your fight or flight mode, your, your autonomic nervous system, which releases cortisol, epinephrine, the stress chemicals that, that, and that's when people are talking about inflammation. A lot of times that's what they're talking about is stress chemicals like cortisol, epinephrine. Um, and the scariest part about that is that, um, those are released in your body and in your brain, but they both can get in through your blood brain barrier, which can get into mm. your actual brain, which can get into your actual brain structures. Um, and as your body is sitting in that, just like a plant wilts when it's not in fertile ground, that's what starts to happen to your brain. And so then all these things that your mind is feeling, anxiety, stress, depression, memory loss, brain fog, mood swings, insomnia, freaking name them all, <laughs> all of those types of things can start to happen when, um, inflammation in your brain gets too high um, um it's chronic and so the biggest disclaimer i'll give is that this is not like meningitis encephalitis that is generally started virally or bacterially that's completely different your meninges are a specific portion of your brain like very different than what i'm describing so i don't want to freak people out because sometimes it's like oh my god i'm gonna die because those are extraordinarily serious things i am talking about low grade um constant um it's like drip torture for your brain essentially <laughs> that's, <laughs> um that's all I mean, life life gives me drip torture cody you know <laughs> uh, yeah seriously that's a really good analogy i was just at the chiropractor i don't know two weeks ago i go all the time but at this appointment i have this chronic neck pain and it's the result of my body being twisted up in so many ways and my chiropractor said to me which was revelatory and it shouldn't be. Did you ever think that your nervous system could be causing some of this? And I was like, oh my God, my fucked up mind is actually making my body hurt, which is insane to me. But for me personally, I do think they're connected. They are, there is nerve tissue and nerve cells in every single cell of your body. Man. Yeah. Well, the deep, I've been diving into the calm app and really trying to make a practice out of that. I go through these, like, I'm sure everybody does like fits and spurts of being really great at, um, meditation, or I just call it like sort of silent time. I just sit there in my closet in the dark. Um, but it's a habit nice. that I've had a hard time sticking with beyond a couple of months, but it was really, it's, it's really inspirational for me, you know, to hear that kind of 
analysis because now I'm realizing how intertwined they both are. And it's just a really fun one for neck pain, especially your tension pain or tension in general is um, taking up a moment to two things. I, I mean, if you'd like, I'm happy to share two tools, but Please. one is kind of funny. Uh, you sit, I mean, really sit there and just imagine, sit and try to sink down into the pain that you're feeling in your neck. Um, and after a couple seconds, some type of thought or something will come up, almost always it does, where it's like, just scream out, um, yell, like, just go, whoo, whatever. It's usually something funny or just like shake or jump or whatever. It'll come to your mind, just do it right away. And that will help release some of the energy that's, that's stored up in there. Um, another one that I really, really love um, because it's energy that's stored in there. Um, that I, I just, I use this with people when it's, they need something really fast. Um, and what you do is you sit, close your eyes, and then you go into wherever the tension is. So for you, it would be your neck. Um, and you want to rate that. So one out of five, like, where is it? One to five. Um, if it's a five, which is the worst one is the, or zero is you want to get to zero. So that's no pain um, and no energy there. Um, and so what you can start to do then is um, rate it. And then you imagine a metaphor. So that could be anything. It could be a picture. It could be a sound. It could be a color, um, whatever. Some people, like I, I did this yesterday with, um, um, one of my clients and she, had, it was a knife for her that was stuck in her stomach, um, or sorry, her lower, uh, the right side of her lower back. I mean, it was a knife. And so she, what you do is you imagine that knife coming out of you, pulling it out, out from the top of your head, putting it in front of you and then destroying it however you want to destroy it. Laser beams come out of your palms and it blows up the knife, whatever. And then what you do is you re-rate. So you go back into your body and like, okay, where am I at now? Almost always after you do that, it'll go down one, a point or two at a time. And what you want to do is redo that over and over and over um, until it gets to zero. Um, and it's a really fun, it's kind of a fun way to uh, go from your body uh, th through your brain, out your mind, destroy it and it helps your body calm down. Yeah, I mean, I really feel like we're on the precipice of some really interesting discoveries um, that we've always known anecdotally, but about the power of the brain and mindset over physical health, which you always oh, would yes. hear these one-off stories, you know, about people who have cancer, who miraculously survive or the growth stops and reverses. And it's always been a sort of one-off, one in a million kind of scenario, but with the awareness that I think we humans as a species are moving toward with spirituality and meditation, I really feel like there is a moment on the horizon where we're going to begin to harness this in a powerful way. And excuse me if that sounds woo-woo, but I do no. feel a collective awakening happening. It's true. Scientifically, it's happening as well. It's under the surface and most people aren't looking at research around this, but it's called biofield. It's an entire, the biofield is the energetic field that's around your body that you can manipulate and can affect physical like reality. There's hardcore science. Healing Yourself is a book about this. She, the doctor that's in it, it was had a Reiki experience. She's a hardcore physicist um, and psychoneuroimmunologist. Um, and she, um, had a crazy experience with Reiki and now she spent the rest of her life, um, trying to figure that out. And so bio, the bio field is what she describes and is the scientific term for what you're describing. It's absolutely true. She cites hundreds and hundreds of research articles. It's not one in a million. Um, there's a specific process. Like it's, it's, uh, this is some of the stuff that I get most passionate about because it's like how your brain really can start to affect, um, physical reality, like this woo woo type stuff. Um, has more science behind it than people really think. And we're just now getting our rational like tools, um, scientific method wrapped around it.
Yeah, it's so cool that at Rewrite and Rise, you're able to quantify some of that because I do think there's a group of people who needs convincing that there's data behind this. So it's really cool how you're able to marry that concept yeah. with the science because, you know, sometimes we need proof. Yeah, I'm one of those people. I 100%. I mean, like, I, I would I would poke Jesus too if I was Thomas. It's like, what what the heck's going on? You know, like, I feel that. Yeah, you gotta have you gotta have questions, and you have to. I do at least have to understand the whys before I hop on board with anything. Cody, I feel like we could we could talk forever. Um, but we have to wrap. I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you for breaking down some really complex things into really workable and practical tips for everyone. So please let us know where we can connect with you if we're interested in working with you and where we can find more of your great content. Yeah, so My Brain Body Lab on TikTok is the best place. Uh, we post on there like two, three times a day most of the time. Um, we do lives, all sorts of stuff. That's a really good spot for us. And then our website is a great place too, rewriteandrise.com. Um, so, and I appreciate you jumping on. You didn't have to pick me. There's 7 billion people on earth. So I appreciate you taking a moment to uh, check out some of our stuff and uh, take a moment to invite me to come on uh, to your platform and share space with you and your people. I appreciate it so much, Cody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you guys for watching and or listening. Gosh, this was a good one. Um, I wish we had more time to dive into that last topic that we were talking about, this great awakening. But who knows? Maybe we'll find someone to chat about that with in upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of We Gotta Talk. If you don't mind, I would love if you could leave a rating and review. Those help this show to get out to people who might find it useful or entertaining. I'm so grateful for your support. Please follow on Instagram at Sunny Abada or check out our latest blog post at wegotatalk.com slash blog. See you next time. Thank you.